Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Today, we take a look at Central Asia and in particular, our withdrawal from Afghanistan and what that will do to the region and what our interests. Uh, Linda Gasparello, the co-host of this program, will introduce our special guest who is an authority, and really probably one of the greatest authorities on the region, Linda. Today, our guest is Frederick Starr. He is a much published expert on Russian and Eurasian affairs and has advised three US presidents on them. He is fluent in Russian. He is the founder and chairman of the Central Asia Caucus Institute of the American Foreign Policy Council. He is also a former president of Oberlin College and a former vice provost of Tulane University. But that is not all. He is a clarinetist with the famed Louisiana Repertory Jazz Ensemble, which he co-founded. Uh, Fred, what is going to happen? The U.S. is withdrawing, and like most withdrawals, whether it's withdrawal from empire or withdrawal from occupying a country or withdrawal even from policing a country, uh, it's pretty chaotic. What happens in the region next? And is the U.S. correctly or at all? Um, rightly positioned to take advantage, or will others take advantage of the vacuum? Let me comment first about the human dimension of this, because all the rest, all the rest is is secondary importance. Human dimension of of our move is terrible. It's tragic, uh, because I mean, just the other day, Samantha Powers said that if you want to. If you want to uh, build peace in the world, depend on the women. And here we are dumping the one country where women have made most startling advances over the last generation, thanks to our effort. We're dumping them. And we're not just dumping the women, we're dumping the entire educated class that has grown up through vast expenditure and huge efforts by tens of thousands of Americans. We're, we, it was the American effort that really led to not only the urbanization of the country, uh, pulling tens of thousands of people out of deep poverty in the countryside, but also to the growth of communications, transportation, and so forth. So as a result, you now have a rapidly developing country with a whole class of younger men and women in business, in organizations, associations, who are modern and who accept the basic principles of life in a modern open society. These are the people we are abandoning. Why? Because we've convinced ourselves that this was, this was an endless war, even though for the last quite a few years, the American toll there has been very low, as they've been saying many times, lower than in, among American forces in Germany. Beyond that, what we've missed is the fact that this is this is, has been an extraordinary success in human terms in developing a new modern sector of society of men and, men and women we're dumping them so we're doing everything wrong where do we go from here well that's an open question uh, and uh, interestingly the People in Central Asia themselves, the five governments of the former Soviet republics, and significantly, they include among themselves as Central Asians, Afghanistan, they have linked arms and are basically 
saying, now look here, there are two things we want of the world. First is we want you to recognize that we are a world region of which Afghanistan is a ancient and honorable part. And second, that we are passionately concerned with opening our transport and communications to the South, across Afghanistan, to the Arabian Sea, to India, to Pakistan, and to Southeast Asia. Now, this is what they see as the key to the uh, saving the economy of Afghanistan, transport and trade across their country in which Afghans themselves can participate. Now, the Central Asians are having a big conclave on the 16th in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, at which the foreign ministers of, you name it, 20 foreign ministers, including the foreign ministers of both China and Russia, are going to be present. They are watching this. They will, they will uh, draw the right conclusions. And at this point, the US is not sending Secretary of State Blinken, who would be the obvious person if we were serious. In fact, we don't know who we're sending. There's been talk of various people. But in fact, America has pretty much chosen to opt out, not just of Afghanistan, but the region and the opening of the region to the South. Now, what does that leave? It leaves them, frankly, uh, in the clutches of China and Russia. Fred, could you talk a little bit about the process of regionalization in Central Asia? This is not something that's just come up. This is something they actually have been working on, is it not? It really is. Well, <laughs> if you take a very long view, and I am a historian, <laughs> therefore I'm committed to that. If you take a very long view, Central Asia as a cultural and uh, geopolitical zone has existed for 3,000 years. It was only when the Russian Empire under the Tsars and the British Empire divided it up. Afghanistan going to the south, everything north of that going to the north, to, to Russia. And what's been happening since the collapse of the USSR is that these six peoples have increasingly, and now very intensely, uh, embraced their common identity as Central Asia. This is a, a development, uh, the most striking development, because they're now creating something analogous to ASEAN in Asia or the Nordic Council in Scandinavia. This is a new world region. We haven't yet fully embraced it. What should our posture be when we withdraw? How should we have done this? And as I mentioned a few moments ago, Withdrawals are messy. The withdrawal, the British withdrawal from its empire was messy. Niall Ferguson has written and talked about that. Our withdrawal from Vietnam was messy. Our withdrawal from uh, everywhere has been messy. Uh, how should we have done it and when should we have done it, if we should have done it in living memory, as it were? It's not my role to be uh, prognosticating after the fact. However, however, uh, what is clear is that we never had a plan. It was simply get out. Both the head of our Joint Chiefs and our Secretary of State appealed to President Biden to slow it down so we can think it through. He rejected both of them. Now, in 
many societies, when people put forward project, uh, uh, proposals that affect the lives literally of tens of millions of people and they are rejected, they resign. That hasn't happened. Uh, which is not so much in the American tradition as it is in the tradition of, say, Britain, uh, the resignation if your advice is not taken or if you failed in some fairly dramatic way. Linda. Fred, does it look like our immediate strategy, at least, is just to establish bases somewhere in Central Asia? The base issue should have been under discussion for the last several years under Democrats, Republicans, and Democrats. It hasn't been. And what, what would you recommend we do going forward? You have advised three American presidents, which gives you a remarkable entitlement to opine on the issue. Uh, what would you tell President Biden if he asked you in today? Well, first, advising presidents uh, should be discounted because that assumes that they took your advice. But <laughs> uh, turning to the present moment, it seems to me that the advice he did receive from his uh, uh, head of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of State to slow it down, think it through, have a strategy that is beyond an immediate and negative step. And that strategy has to include several components. It has to include, it has to include security, not just for Afghanistan, but for the entire region after all. If we bow out as we are proposing to do, we're inviting the Chinese and the Russians to fill the vacuum. So security, it should also include economic development. The Central Asians themselves at this important meeting in Tashkent have proposed to us the best possible economic program for the immediate future. Open the windows to the South. Are we embracing it and seizing it? Not yet. Uh, it has to include social matters too. What do you, what is the fate of those millions of men and women in Afghanistan whose future we created and are now basically jettisoned? Uh, let us just uh, talk about the South. Why is the South important? That's because traditionally Russia is to the North and Russia has dominated at least in Soviet times, uh, those states and to the South our new partners, new trading opportunities, new allies? Absolutely right. And now this gets to a really uh, a, a finicky little detail of history. There's been so much talk in the last years about the Silk Road. And the assumption has always been in the West that this was somehow some magical highway that went from Europe to China and vice versa. In reality, the it was never called the Silk Road, by the way. That was invented by a German scholar in the 19th century. But, but the reality is that the great east-west route went from Europe through Central Asia and then where? To India, to the Indus Valley, Pakistan and India. This was far the most important. The Chinese route was sporadic, on and on. The Indian route was constant. It was not just a transport uh, uh, channel for trade and industry, which it really was. But, and by the way, it's not inconceivable that Shakespeare wrote a war, a cotton cloth that had been 
uh, uh, woven in Central Asia and shipped over that route. It's not just the economics of it. It's also this the route to India from Central Asia and hence from Europe was a significantly a cultural uh, transport zone. So you had Buddhism spreading all over Central Asia. You had Islam spreading to uh, Pakistan and India, what is now Pakistan and India, over these routes from Central Asia. So what they are doing is reopening the most ancient trade route on the entire Eurasian continent. So they, they don't need to reinvent it. And they know they don't need to reinvent it. They need our support in reopening. Linda, you're a sort of Silk Roader, right? Um, no, I you... characterize myself as that, a Silk Roader. Um, I'm, I'm a fellow traveler. Um, honestly, I believe that this is an important opportunity for us right now in the United States. It is important for us to be part of this process. I think we were beginning to be part of the process in the C5 plus one negotiations. And, and of course, you know, uh, Fred, you can talk about that. But, but why should we be left off the roof? Um, we are actually just not entering it right now um, because of uh, you know, just a reckless disregard of what's happening there. And exciting things are happening in Central Asia. But they really are. And, and let me just for a moment look at it from the standpoint uh, perspective of the residents and leaders of the six Central Asian countries, including Afghanistan. From their perspective, the key to their survival and their prospering, and above all, their sovereignty, is that they are able to maintain cordial, balanced relations among all their major external powers. That means Russia, China, and the US, as well as Europe and India. Now, if we are bowing out, and all the evidence at the pre present time is that we are, uh, the people in the region are convinced that we are. If we are bowing out, we have destroyed the basis of the strategy, laudable strategy they've all adopted to maintain their sovereignty. Yet, if you look at any American document on Central Asia, on Afghanistan, right at the top is preservation and defense of their sovereignty. So we're exactly contradicting our own affirmations in this. That's right. And if you have that uh, regionalism, you can't have that old dividing conquer, which was something that, of course, is, uh, you know, for stability. That is an absolutely crucial point. Uh, when in the immediate post-Soviet years, of course, all these countries, including the Afghans after 9-11, they were busy affirming and consolidating their sovereignty. So. They, they had very narrow perspective. They all talked about their national heroes. They, they, they cut off trade with each other, little contact. The new generation didn't know each other. But then over time, they thought this out and said, wait a minute, all these outside powers are, as you said, playing a divide and conquer game, playing us against each other. And let it be said, the United States did too. How? We passed out posies to the good guys who were instituting exactly the reforms that we demanded, and we handed out demerits 
to the ones who weren't. That divide and conquer game vanishes when they begin to link arms and collaborate. In this case, the leaders are unquestionably Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. These are both at this point with, with forward-looking governments dealing with a very complicated situation with China and Russia and all, but they are moving forward and they are drawing the other countries uh, uh, forward uh, with their momentum. So, so we, I worry that we are undercounting the very basis, they, clever basis, they've devised for their own sovereignty. What do you expect to come out of the conference in, on, starting on the 16th of this month? Is this going to be a seminal conference, a kind of Congress of Vienna, after which everything will be different than it was before? Uh, uh, that's a, a heady prospect. I, I hope it isn't. I hope that people realize, as my friend Frank, Franz Fukuyama, uh, Frank Fukuyama did not after the collapse of the USSR, that history continues. I hope that this is viewed as one step in the long process and that the United States working with our friends in Europe, working with the Indians, working with the Japanese and Koreans, we, we eventually come, and faster the better, to a, to a common position to support the sovereignty of, of the region, its identity as a region, and the urgency of its opening to the South. So they're no longer exclusively dependent upon Russia and China. All of them want to maintain good relations with Russia and China. We would too if we were in their position. But they, to do that, they must have a balance. The other side of Russia in Europe, in, in the Baltic states, there is a great fear that Russia may invade, that we may see a repeat of what we saw in Crimea, that they were may, trying to claim back their former satellites uh, with the excuse that somehow Russian nationals living there are being poorly treated. Is that also a reality in Central Asia? It's not a reality, but it's a constant fear. Central Asians, <laughs> they themselves talk about a hangover that uh, Putin shares with the people around him. And this, this Soviet hangover will eventually die. Remember, by the way, that uh, Generation two after the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia, Britain invaded the American colonies. Uh, it burnt the coast of, of Connecticut. It, it, even Britain's hangover was lasted a while. I'm confident Russia's will eventually go away. But it's not happening in the present generation. And the Central Asians are, and those in the Caucasus, I should stress, are rightly concerned constantly to seek outside powers, especially Europe and America, to balance this threat. Right. can you talk about the two largest countries and the strides that they've made? That would be Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and the leadership there and some of the reasons why they are keen to preserve their sovereignty. Well, they're all keen to preserve their sovereignty because that's who they are. They, this has to do with national language, customs, family relations, and so forth. 
the the fate of Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan from a Western perspective has been paradoxical. For a generation and a half, Mr. Karimov ruled Uzbekistan with a very strong hand, and we were deeply critical of his record with regard to human rights. Similarly, President uh, uh, in, uh, in Kazakhstan, Nazarbayev, uh, even though he virtually created the country by negotiating with American oil companies even before the collapse of the USSR, nonetheless, he had to run a tight ship too because he has the longest open border with Russia in the world. And he knew that he had to be very careful. Therefore, they were they also ran a tight ship that elicited much criticism from this country. A lot of it just. However, the two presidents today in uh, Mirzioyev in Uzbekistan, who's been there five years, and, and, and President Takayev in, in Kazakhstan, these are both very savvy, balanced, forward-looking people. They're realists. They know what they can't do. They know what they can do, but must shut up about. Uh, but, they're, the, the, but they're making progress. And I, I must say, hats off to them. A problem for the US in all Central Asia and the Caucasus, and it will be in Afghanistan, is that the US Congress charged the State Department with producing an annual report on human rights and religious freedom and labor unions and all that. And the State Department is obliged to produce such a report and do all the research necessary to carry it out. Unfortunately, they've never had the money to staff that office with adequate, adequately or with competent experts. As a result, that office, I suppose we'd all do the same where we had we been in their position, they tended to take reports that came to them over the transom from special interests. Some of them were laudable special interests, some of them dubious, but this is what they had to work with. And unfortunately, the annual report, which basically was like your piano teacher when you were eight years old, you got a star or you got a, a, a red bird on your, on your music or you got a demerit. Um, these reports have done a lot of damage there are much more effective ways of getting the same objectives, advancing the same objectives, but those reports have hurt us over the years and uh, prevented us from subtler and more effective steps to those ends. Uh, follow up, Fred, on the subject of religious freedom, um, as Mwala mentioned, uh, we've been to Kazakhstan a couple of times. We did some shows there. Um, we found that there was a, a wide feeling of religious tolerance there. We interviewed uh, quite a number of religious leaders there. Um, what, what's your take on? We have to acknowledge that they did have to deal with substantial threats. We should know better of all because we suffered from them ourselves in 9-11. Now things are, are much calmer, partly due to their tough line. But at the same time, we also have to acknowledge in the case of Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, so on, that these are a large, large part of their population are very traditional Muslims. 
and they're 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 used to interacting mainly with people who completely share their views and and we can it's a very difficult step for a modernizing government to to somehow find a path that on the one hand permits diversity of belief or non-belief and on the other hand preserves a space for the religiously pious who are the vast majority in, in every country in the region. It's a conundrum. My suggestion is that we work with them on this rather than try to work on them, which is exactly what we've done. Fred, I'd like to ask you about the books that you've written about Central Asia, and in particular, Lost Enlightenment, Central Asia's Golden Age from Arab Conquest to Tamerlane. And then, of course, you've got a new book coming out on two Persian philosophers, Al-Biruni and Ibn Sina. First, tell us about the book Lost Enlightenment, and then go on to tell us about the new book. Well, I found myself uh, looking for a focus uh, uh, 30 years ago and traveled all over the former Soviet Union and concluded that the real opportunity lay in Central Asia and the Caucasus. But I couldn't, I'd spent years doing archeological work in Turkey. I spoke Turkish and, and so on, but I didn't have a real access to this region. So I, little by little, I got, I, I explored these archeological remains and then got interested in the people who lived there. And that is what resulted in the book Lost Enlightenment. Maybe because I was learning in the process I didn't consider myself the consummate world expert. Readers found it accessible, and it's translated into more than 20 languages today. But it was, for me, a real, really exciting discovery to realize that this is a huge cultural zone. You know, we think the Middle East, we think the Arab world, well, yes, some of these writers did write in Arabic, but they were, they spoke various Persianate languages and Turkish languages. That they weren't part of Iran, the modern Iran. They were. This was something quite specific, and and that is what I tried to identify. And which, let it be said, the Central Asians themselves have now re-embraced. They've they they've lay hold of their own deep past. And I I am honored to think that my book played a small role, translated into all the local languages in that process. You're an extraordinary man with an extraordinary grasp of the part of the world that most of us, alas, know too little about. We thank you for coming on our program and enlightening us. And I believe you're coming back to talk about something quite different, to talk about jazz, New Orleans, and academia, which is the other career that, as a man of affairs, you have had. Meanwhile, all the best, and thank you very much. Good luck in your trip to Uzbekistan and Tashkent. Cheers. Well, thank you. That's our show for today. We thank you for coming along. And if you should be adventurous and wish to take a trip to Central Asia, it will reward you in bragging rights but in sheer unadulterated interest. Cheers. Bye-bye. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.